Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're tuning into an episode of the Redefining Society podcast, hosted by Marco Ciappelli. Let's face it, the future is now. We live in a hybrid analog digital society, and we must stop ignoring it or pretending that technology is not affecting us. The line between the physical and virtual worlds has become a figment of our imagination. On it, we are continually performing a dangerous balancing act, juggling convenience, privacy, freedom, security, technology, society, culture, and even the future of humanity. There is no better place than here, and no better time than now to muse on our relationship with technology and how to redefine what society means in this new age. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marco Ciappelli. Welcome to another episode of Redefining Society podcast on ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. Uh, we have a bunch of different channels. This is uh, one of the two that I have. Uh, the other one, I tell story about storyteller. And here we talk about society and technology, which is a very, very wide uh, angle. Uh, to to look at things because everything is nowadays related with technology. And I got this uh, suggestion for a, a book about how strategic pricing shape business, market, and society. And I was like, hmm, I don't know. Is that really technology? Is it really something that people might be interested? But as I start digging into this, I realize that uh, there is a strong connection with our everyday life. And I think it's important that we understand why something costs uh, this much. It's not just because maybe it's a brand that they make you pay more money just because they say Gucci on it. And I'm not paid by Gucci <laughs> to, do, to say this, but just to give an example that everybody knows. And how other products maybe are needed to be more control uh, with the intervention of the government because maybe they are more important, maybe there is some reason why we want to keep the price yeah, in a certain way, maybe in one country, maybe in another country as a different um, leverage uh, the decision. But I'm not the expert here. So I brought the author that wrote the book. It's uh, JMI. He's here with me for people watching. Uh, you already see it on my left or right, depending on what you're mirroring <laughs> your computer. And for people listening, here it is. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Marco. Nice to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure. So I already tried to paint 
probably a really, really bad uh, painting of <laughs> of the concept, but I wanted to grasp the attention of people to know that uh, this is kind of the direction where we're going. But again, you are the expert. You're the one that, that wrote the book. And, and I think people will be interested in figuring out why they're paying this much for one thing, this much for another thing, and what is behind those decision-making that happen nowadays. Let's start with you. What uh, qualifies you to, to write a, such a book <laughs> and, uh, and who you are? Um, thank you very much, Marco. So I'm French, but I've, I've been living in the U.S. for more than uh, 25 years. And for the last 30 years, my job has been to first help set prices uh, in the first job I had ever. And, uh, and then I became a consultant and I have helped company uh, set prices. So from a background, I'm an economist, if you wish, with an economics background, as well as behavioral science. I had a PhD in marketing. But more practically, for the past 30 years, I've been in the details about how companies decide how much they should charge. Um, and I wrote this book because most people understand that the actual number you pay for things have a lot of influence about what you can buy, what you cannot buy, what you can afford, um, and or inflation, for instance, is an example about how prices uh, impact society. But I wrote this book in order for people to to see that in addition to the number, the structure about how we set prices also has a massive impact on how society works out. Uh, and that I thought it would be helpful for people to think about that structure and the consequences. And this will have impact, for instance, about uh, how we price uh, Gen AI tools going forward. Um, you know, if we price Gen AI tool per user, um, well, that, that is going to be basically saying that these tools are helping um, humans do other works. But if we price them per task, that is um, basically saying that they might replace humans. So in the pricing structure itself is one of the fundamental questions about the dialogue about well, what will Gen AI do? Uh, is it replacing humans or is it enhancing humans? The way we price things has an impact on that. When you put it that way, and you know, my background is political science, and so I study a little bit of economy. It wasn't my favorite because uh, I'm not a math person; I'm more like a thinker. But it kind of gives you that that idea that everything is connected. There is synergy in everything that we do, and we discover that with the environment. When I when we talk on this channel about climate change and how one thing in one side of the world affect I think on the other side of the world. And I, I see the same thing as far as pricing, because we live in a global market nowadays. We've seen it with the wars. And so, again, it sounds to me that you can do a lot to control, not in a bad way, hopefully, but control society, but it's also coming the other way where society influence the way you price thing i'm assuming so that's right so so it's a uh it's a back and forth dialogue if you wish between society and uh companies and so on that uh intends to find a good a good equilibrium uh and the word we have used is the word shaping um is a company could shape things can help make them happen 
but also you can shape things completely differently from the market forces and what people want and so on. So you, you have a dialogue between what is possible and what you should do uh, in order to, to drive outcomes. I think it is really important for us to look at how these pricing structures uh, do influence the, the outcomes of society. Let me take an example uh, that, that came recently. Uh, recently, people have been talking about tipping, and it seems like such a natural thing, but we, we tip differently in the U.S. versus uh, everywhere in the world. You have societies like Japan where there's no tips. Europe's where tipping is, uh, whether in German or French, it's called guilt money or pourboire. It's just for you to drink uh, or to have a drink on Friday. But um, in the U.S., it's to pay for your roof, your kids' clothes, and everything, right? Uh, so historically, tipping in the U.S. has been to playing uh, a much more important role for people that are service workers. Um, and more recently, with um, the the famous swivel, where you can now, when you go at a counter, you would have the, the turn to, to tap, you know, how much are you willing to tip? 15, 20, 25 percent. Uh, people have been complaining about, well, you know, um, I'm okay to do this in a restaurant, but in a place where uh, for instance, at my orthodontist, it's like, why am I tipping? You know, what what what's different and so on. It's a good illustration of uh, there's a change about how we do things, and then people react, and there's the balance. And we can talk about about the details about where tipping is coming from, and and where it is going. But it's clearly shaping society. During the COVID time, the fact that a bunch of terminals have been able to set up these numbers at 15, 20, 25 has meant that many businesses have survived better. They made slightly more money, and we were all willing to give a bit more money because we wanted small business to survive, even if we knew that we couldn't be in the restaurants, we couldn't be outside, we couldn't have no, live our normal lives. We wanted these businesses to pass through that, uh, that period. Uh, but now, this, this, you know, we're back to normal in theory, but the way we tip is still quite different. And so there's a lot of dialogue, people saying, is it right? Is it not right? And so on. I think that's a normal process. And I could explain a bit about what the difference has been made uh, between you scribbling a, a number on a piece of paper and, and tipping. The main difference is when you were writing a number, it was a private number. And you were doing the calculation for yourself about what you wanted to give uh, in the restaurants. Mm -hmm. Now it's public. People in the queue behind you are looking at what you tip. Uh, the people in front, that is the cashier re uh, register, um, is looking at how, how much are you going to tipping me. And so, therefore, you have a psychological factor that has been brought into this act, tipping, that was not there before. And that creates a reaction for people that has changed the way price and tipping is working out. Right. And that, that's, uh, I, I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so I've, I've seen the thing flipping in a coffee shop start at 25%. And I'm like, I'm not going to give it 25%. I'm actually getting my own coffee here. You're not even bringing. But, but I agree with the fact that during the pandemic, and again, you know, which is somehow it's still going, but when we were really locked down, it was a sign of appreciation to say, well, that's I'm right. going to tip you even more because I need your service. I don't want to be the one going in line and so food delivery and all of that but i was also at connecting with that i was listening to npr a while back about the price of gas going up and they were saying well it will come back down but somebody said i think it was a, an Harvard economist say well usually when the price goes up 
it comes down, but it doesn't come down back to the price that it was. Once they jack the price, usually it, it stays up. And I'm wondering when you were explaining how the tip system also did the same thing, if there, if there is a connection that the kind of affect a lot of different product, not just the tipping and the service or, or the gas industry. Yes. And it affects different product category in a different way. And we saw this with the wave of inflation. There are a set of products, and gas is probably a good example of that, uh, that are based on supply and demand markets that are optimized every minute, every second across the world. Um, and these markets tend to have wide swings. And it can sometimes go back down even more than it went up, right? It's, it's, very, it's very random. And these are types of markets that we call dynamic markets, um, that where you don't have to be, the, the supply-demand forces are going to drive the outcome about how prices are going to be set. Uh, now, you have other markets, just take the extreme luxury goods, for instance, you were mentioning Gucci. Uh, yeah, price only go one direction. <laughs> they, they, they are, you know, and uh, you, you have other examples like, uh, uh, like Steinway pianos, for instance. The price of these pianos has been set up so that um, they always go up year, model year after model year because they want to and they never lose value. And so part of the uh, of the attractiveness of the Steinway piano is not only is it a fantastic piano with a great touch, but it's also a piano that if you buy at a really expensive price, you can resell it for a higher price. At least that's the promise. And, and that is set by essentially a, a very detailed mechanism that the, the company has set in play so that price will always increase slightly a little bit so that it, they, they can fulfill the promise that they had for you making an investment on a piano, you not just buying an instrument. It's almost like when you buy an expensive car or it's, a collectionist car, right? It's like, that's right. So a collection car will have the same kind of impact. So every luxury item uh, will tend to be priced to the value that people put into these cars or art or things like that that are very unique. Uh, and these kind of prices will tend to not go back down except if there is a massive bubble like tulips in, in the Netherlands and then it's right, like, right. That's, you, that's you, you a, could, you could that's incredible. things up and then yeah. uh, we have the cyber um, currencies and so on that, that went through the same cycle. Yeah. The tulip market, I was reading a while back about that and it's, it's incredible. Uh, let's talk about more uh, everyday items. Mm -hmm. Like the one where you look at if inflation is, is happening or if, if the cost of living, if the salary is going up at the same time. So people, stuff that people buy at the grocery store, people that that that, that has that, I don't know in, in English what it's called, but in Italian is paniere, which uh -huh. is kind of like the basket of the, <laughs> the fundamental good that you need for pretty much surviving. Bread, milk, uh, water, all that kind of stuff. How has how, that coming into place i'm assuming completely different than luxury items so very different from luxury items um if, even within the, what you buy in the supermarkets you have different types of products that will be uh having different pricing dynamics um imagine you have a products where on a shelf all of the products on the shelf belong to different companies 
they're going to all price it in a way that is really dependent on how much volume they're going to get, depending on how much uh, prices are set. So, so if you set your price higher up, less people buy your product. If you if you price it slightly lower, and and if you price your product wrong, you're going to not have that much volume. And so these prices tend to be quite competitive. And we've seen that in the inflation cycle we were through, these products have gone up quite heavily uh, for some reasons, like, you know, costs went up and supply constraints and the war in Ukraine and all that. But they also have started to come down, uh, partially also because the, the retailers are putting a lot of pressure and the value proposition of the retailers is to help people save money, you know, that, which is what Walmarts and, and many others promise. And so therefore, you, you had these prices went up and down. Uh, if you take some other day-to-day -day products, like the subscriptions we have or the coffee, they're really priced differently because once you have decided to walk into a Starbucks, you're going to buy something. And so you have a set of choices in front of you. And if you feel like you can't afford as much as you could a week ago because maybe you lost your job or you're a bit pressured at the end, the end of the month and so on, you can always buy something slightly less pricey than, than you used to but you are within the Starbucks environment. It will be an extreme case for you to decide, I'm spending too much on Starbucks, I'm going to stop drinking coffee, I need to find a place to get cheaper coffee. Uh, and so within that environment, you tend to have, this is what we, we call the choice model, where you give customers the choice and they decide how much they want to pay with a number of options in front of them. And in the choice model, you tend to not have prices go back down in the same way as they could in the retail environments. And so prices tend to tend to go up on average. That's the same reason why you're going to probably see all of the subscriptions you're going to have, whether on video or others, will tend to progressively price up. Because once you decide you want to, to have the subscription, you're going to be locked in within that choice. Let's go there in the more... Mm technological aspect of things. So you mentioned Starbucks. Starbucks, it's it's a coffee shop, but it's also yeah, kind of like an Amazon in a way. They they calculate things. They know what they're doing. Of course, they sell online. They let you order yeah. online. They also as for what I understand and you know, like you living in uh, in America but grew up in Europe, I know that the same chain that may have a store in San Francisco, a store in Los Angeles. I'm not even going to go to the Starbucks in Las Vegas where things cost <laughs> even more, but they price also accordingly to the location where they are. So is yes. that taking into consideration the overall social demographic that live in a certain area? Uh, I mean, how yes. complicated it is to run those numbers to price it? It, it can be quite complicated. Um, and so, for instance, the, the main determinants about how you price something should start with how much it costs. And it could cost different amounts depending on where you are. The, you know, the... The shop you are, the, the Starbucks shop will, you know, the, the renting and so on will be at a different price depending on where you are in the country. So, so that cost will drive the prices up or down depending on how it varies. The cost of the personnel will also change things. 
Now the cost of shipping the coffee around is probably you know more more uniform and more more the same, and and the recipes and the marketing is probably more spread. But anyway, so costs is a determinant of price, mm-hmm. and then uh, another determinant of price is what the value do customers get, and wh- how do that compare to other things they pay for? So you you will find that in large cities people tend to be wealthier. And the, the prices tend to be slightly higher and people are willing to pay more than in rural environments. And that's true in the U.S. as well as it's true in France and in Italy and, and, and other countries. Right. Uh, and then the last components of how prices are set is the intensity of the competition. Uh, and different markets at different points uh, behave differently. Sometimes you can have a price war uh, where companies are really fighting for every uh, every customer or, or some other times there's more peacetime where, you know, you understand the market share is split in one way or the other. And so that will also impact how prices are, are set. But that means, and so we could go to how this, this, this will, will be uh, impacted by AI, for instance, and technology. Yeah, let's, let's uh, go there with algorithms and, with algorithms. and even Amazon or how they price, they price stuff according maybe to where you're IPs and logging. Exactly. So these three things I talked about vary everywhere in in different ways. Uh, In the old times, you couldn't calculate all the ways, the costs and your price and the willingness to pay and it all varied everywhere. So you set up, I don't know, five zones to price in the US. And for these five zones, this this is it, right? Uh, but now you have the ability with AI to consume much more data, to look at who is coming to my store. What are the prices of the stores that are around this? How should I optimize? If I move my price slightly up or down, do I get more people walking in or not? How does that impact all of that? And so uh, sophisticated AI technology has started to be implemented in pricing for more than 20 years in different industries. But in the recent five to seven years, it has now been uh, large chains of almost any kind of product and service have started to use sophisticated AI algorithms to price things dependent on the three criteria I talked about. Interesting and scary at the same time, to the point where I'm imagining always some utopian or dystopian scenario where it will be a price just made for Marco or for Jean, or according maybe to know how much money you have in the bank at the moment, how much you can't afford, and and it's a very, very uh, sci-fi scenario, which technically ain't that far. It's not that far-fetched. It is not that far, and I think we should have a dialogue about whether it's right or not, Mm -hmm. and in which way, when is it right and when is it not right. Yeah. So let's talk about pricing fairness for a second. Yes. If you uh, ask people what is a fair price, the main answer people will, will tell you is two, two things mostly. A fair price is a price everybody else pays. If everybody pays the same thing, that's fair. Uh, another way to look at it is a fair price is a price set by free markets. What does free market actually mean? No, nobody, but like a free market seems like it, it is fair and so on. Um, in reality, when you dive deeper, you find that there are many circumstances where people don't agree that everybody should pay the same price. Take, for instance, senior discounts. Should we give senior discounts to people going to the movies? Well, people will tend to think, well, you know, seniors don't go to the movies as much as they should. Uh, We need to encourage them. 
plus they don't necessarily have that much money, senior discounts seems like a good thing to do. Um, but if we give discounts to people that are older, why don't we give discounts to people that are younger? And, and, and you will find a portion of the population that says, absolutely, we should give discounts to students, for instance, a way to define people that are younger. Uh, but then not everybody will agree with this. And when you look at why, you will find that um, when you age, you tend to agree less to giving discounts to students. But all young people are okay to give discounts to grandpa. So on average, people are more in favor of giving discounts to, uh, to grandparents and, and seniors um, because of, uh, you know, how they relate to their, to their age. And when you, you, you dig a little deeper, you find out that uh, as uh, people that are conservative age, they are really against giving discounts to students. But mm -hmm. as people that are more democratic uh, in, in the U.S. or more progressive, if you wish, or more liberal, they think anybody should, you know, students should get discounts no matter what their age is. So, so here we get to, all right, the perception of what a fair price is depends on who you are, the societal norms, what we've been used to. And when you flip these norms, you could get to different answers. If you ask the same questions for people in Japan, you find the opposite answers. Um, in, in Japan, people are really in favor of giving discounts to students, but not as much to seniors, partially because it's a great retirement system. And the same mm. thing in France. Right. right. So, so the way society is structured impacts how we we see things. Now, let's talk back about your problem about should is it fair to have a price that is different for everybody? Well, let's look at airlines. They were the first ones to you know set up twenty five years ago, thirty years ago, what's called yield management, which is basically getting the maximum price you could get for anybody on any seat. So you could sit somewhere and you paid 150 bucks and the guy you know, next to you paid 57. And you're like, what, why, why, how? How is that possible? But also in the first class cabin, you have someone who may have paid, I don't know, 600 or 800. Mm -hmm. And what does that do to society to have everybody pay a different price for uh, air travel? Well, basically that means more people can travel. And isn't that a good thing? So... Uh, uh, Let's forget the CO2 issues for now, right? But that, that people and young people and people with not necessarily that many means could travel more and, and go around the world because we have different prices for different people. That is something that has grown tourism, that has grown air traffic, and that has helped people connect to each other and understand other worlds in a better way than they would have otherwise staying in their home and in their village all the time. So you have always different sides to things and so uh, that, that, that you need to, to, to look at. And sometimes varying prices according to what people are willing to pay um, and the value they get from different things can be a really good way to, uh, to essentially offer a particular product or service to a wider population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... One thing that I look at things from a very personal perspective when I look at this, it's like, okay, I understand the slight variation, but when I see the difference to be sometimes even in the $1,000, if you're flying from LA to, <laughs> to Rome, for example, or to Paris, it's not the 50 bucks. It's the actually you know the $1,000 sometimes. So you're like, wow, that's hard to justify it in my, in my mind, right? Or 
Another thing that I can say is, uh, for example, when you pay for luxury, there is a point where the quality doesn't really affect the price anymore. You're really paying for the brand. There is so much of a good leather that you can put in a pair of shoes or in a bag. On top of that is all brand and image. But what I really want to go with this is that you cannot control that. It's okay. It's the market. Who cares? If you can afford it, pay for it. If you don't want to buy it, nobody's forcing you. It's kind of extra, right? Ticket a little less because you have to travel. But I would like to get to when there are decisions to be made on pricing of things that have effect on our society. So yes. climate change, uh, electric car, like uh, everybody probably wants to drive an electric car apart from the infrastructure that may not be there yet. But it's also you need to pay away much more money to start with electric car, even if then you save money as you money go, right? Yeah. But how can the and how do different government, according to the politics and, and the kind of leaning left, right, conservative, liberal, whatever it is, is there a right and a wrong when, when we get to those decisions? Moral, right. ethics. So um, I think we sh it's difficult to say this is right or this is wrong, but I think having a dialogue about this and having a dialogue about why is it better one way or the other, and us as a society, uh, finding out together uh, what is right with the market forces is, is the good thing to do. Before going into the car example, let me talk about the CO2 emissions and one of the ways to discourage people. So we, we want to avoid global, global warming, right? Uh, it's accelerating, and it's due to greenhouse gases. Big greenhouse gas is CO2. So you want to avoid putting more CO2 in the atmosphere. One way to, uh, to solve that is to put a price to CO2. To say if you, so to increase the price of all activities that involve burning uh, some carbons and putting CO2 into the atmosphere. What should be the price of, uh, of, this, uh, of this CO2? Well, if you come back to my example before, if you say everybody should pay the same price, well, what will happen is, um, the price for people in less rich countries, mm -hmm. uh, in Africa, in India, uh, that, that are, you know, burning dong in order to heat themselves. And if you say, you can do this, and this is CO2 price, you're going to have to pay for this. You're going to have a revolution. People need to heat themselves. They need to survive. And even, you know, increasing the price by just a little bit can discourage them to, to find some new solutions. So it's not that it should not be a price, but the price could probably be quite cheap. You offer the same price to some people traveling, you know, some business people, uh, let's say in the US or in Europe traveling around, that same price that will be the right to discourage people in Africa and in India to, uh, to burn too much stuff is going to not discourage anybody at all to fly around. So you need to have a different price. So come back to your, your point about people tend to understand price variations by 10, 20, 30%. It's okay. We had the example of, uh, of the CEO of Uber who was really surprised and the surge pricing he was talking about uh, at some point had multiplied the price by five for someone to go back for, uh, within New York from, from a concert. Like, oh, I was really surprised and so on. So when the price is multiplied by an order of magnitude, people are upset. 
and it you know it doesn't seem fair. But let's go back to to the CO two because of uh, the cost of living in poor countries versus rich countries. You're gonna need to have a price of CO two that would vary massively for different people. So how do you do that? Well, we have other markets where we do vary the price of a bag. Not all bags, you know, are the price of a Gucci bag and so on. And so you differentiate the bags, you differentiate the offer, you build the brands, and you get two different products. I believe on CO2, we should do the same thing. And, and there are technologies that cost a lot more. The equivalent of leather for CO2 is direct air capture. You know, it's you put through massive ventilators a bunch of air and try to, re, to retake the CO2 out of it. That costs between, depending on where you look, $200 to $400 a ton. Planting a tree is around $5 to $15 a ton. And, and avoiding burning something that you wouldn't need is even less than that. So there we go. We have here prices that vary in a different way. And it's actually, you know, if we structured markets in a way where we would encourage or maybe, you know, use some legal means to, to force people in the rich countries to have a price of CO2, we should have a price of CO2 that is very different. And direct air capture is not necessarily a bad idea for you know, all the rich countries that have put so much CO2 in the atmosphere, maybe they should be in charge of paying to take it out. And so there, there's all sorts of details that you need to go through, but I'm coming back to your point about, yes, you should not pay prices that are 5x, five times or 10 times different for the same thing, but you can vary what you buy. And by varying what you buy, you could essentially incent the right behaviors for everybody. Everybody needs to burn less fuel, whatever fuel that is, we should probably have different prices for CO2 across the world. So I, I like your, and I go back to the example of Starbucks. You walk in there and you can buy the mugs, you can buy the more expensive reserve coffee, whatever that is, and you can buy yes. the basic coffee, but you can, if you walk in there, it means that at least you can afford the basic coffee. And then you can upgrade according to your wallet and, and what you think is fair to pay for a coffee right. as well. So the problem, it, it's hard, and I think everybody understand that. It's like, okay, I can get this pen, I can get this pen, I'm looking at the pen, um, yeah. but there is a difference in what I get. It's when yes. you pay the same thing, I mean, when you pay a different price for the same thing that you have that controversial position that you were talking about. That's right. So uh, for exactly the same thing, it is hard to vary the price too much. We've, we've seen it everywhere. Um, uh, pricing varying by 30% is you know, admitted by most people in the, in most countries and most markets as, yeah, that's fair. That's okay. You, you know? probably don't even notice. You, oh, you, you notice, but if you, you, if you see, you, you buy a TV and then your friends buy this a similar TV two months later and he got this for, for 10% less, you're like, yeah, sure. Maybe I didn't negotiate enough. I didn't wait. Right. Enough. Right. If you find that he got the TV for five times less than you have, you're like, <laughs> what did you do? Like, like how, how did you get that to happen? You know? Yeah. Um, so that's why companies, um, sometimes when we have an interest, whether as a company or as a society, to have different people pay different prices, we should really have people pay different price prices for explicit reasons that justify this. Right. Right. 
which is my point about the CO2 emissions. If you think about the CO2 market as one single market with everybody, everything is comparable, that is not fair to these markets because then everybody's trying to go to 15 and then you will not use direct air capture because it's too expensive. Mm -hmm. Why would you pay for $400 when, uh, when you could have something for $15 and so on? And for sure, we should plant as many trees as we can. Now, given the amount of CO2 we have in the atmosphere, we should also, if we can, uh, have the ability to capture and, and, and get the technology to be more advanced in order to capture air and bury CO2 underground as opposed to letting it in the atmosphere where it serves as, as a way to heat ourselves. Right. Well, this is a fascinating conversation because it, it, it's very much not economical for me, but it's sociological, <laughs> so I'm yes. and psychological. And I, I, I would love for you to come back and maybe we go in, in areas that we haven't covered because I think it's fascinating. I'm sure the audience is liking that. But I, I do have a question. When we were talking about um, personal pricing uh, in the utopian world with AI, yeah. but also I, I want to put into the game not only what somebody can afford or where do they live or what is the the final means for are we okay i'm paying two dollars more because i know that a percentage of this product is going to plant the tree which is a great mm -hmm. marketing promotion but you know what if it also helped the environment let's do it uh, mm -hmm. if a dollar goes to uh, if I mean uh, non-profit that resolve anger in, in Africa, cool. If you can afford it, do it. But there is a perception where uh, psychology and advertising and marketing is, is if it costs more, it must be better. Very yes. human thinking. And I feel many companies, obviously, they're there for making more money. They'll leverage that. But is that really true? And can a company ride that wave long enough before the market kind of realize that, uh, what the hell? Especially with social media nowadays where things are a little bit more transparent. So um, there is no doubt that there are some products where we have what we called uh, in, the, in the business, the inverted demand curve where the more you charge, the more people want to buy your stuff, which normally should not be the way it works. It works the opposite way. <laughs> uh, but that's the characteristics of, of luxury items. So you have some items that work this way. And if you increase the price, you, you, you might get quite high demand. And some companies can take advantage of it. Now, what I personally like, because I, uh, as I'm in favor of, of markets and, uh, and transparency. And I think we get to better societal outcomes of, of we have this is we have now with social media and that started 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, a number of products and offers where some companies try to push the prices up with the, the simple logic that I think we can and mm. you won't dare to quit, um, you know, using our product or using our service. So we price higher because we can't, we didn't change anything. We don't add any more value. We don't do anything more for you today than we did yesterday, but we want you to pay us more money today than, 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 than yesterday. And you have a number of examples where uh, people in social media apps says, 
this is ridiculous. Why do I pay this $5 fee now for the same debit card that I used to have? That was one of the first examples of the debit card just in 2011. Um, and there's a woman who basically started two, two campaigns. She was, you know, upset about like, you know, we are in a time when we don't have as much money. We're going into a recession. And now all these companies are jacking up prices on us. And she managed with a great social media campaign to get uh, all the companies who were planning on some price increases to go back there. What that shows is that transparency and market pressure can work better in the technology space than when we had no technology and no communication. As much as we can talk about a number of problems with social media, this is an example that I thought was one that was positive in that it was helping the market forces play out. And it's not true that every company need, you know, can jack up prices and not suffer the consequences. Most of them will suffer the consequences. There's a few exceptions, and usually it comes from some market characteristics where they have managed to add value to uh, a number of people that really want to pay for that money. And at that point, if people can afford it, I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. And let's let's not forget that the value often is uh, not something you can measure. It's uh, people have their own priority. They have their own value. Right. If you are a Disney fan and you go to Disneyland and you want the little hat with the ears and, and you're paying a lot of money because you bought it at that Disneyland, then it's, you're, you're okay to pay more. And it's not... Nobody forced you to do that. It's your decision. Well, maybe your kids forced you to do that, but <laughs> that's a story, right? Well, uh, so, well, again, I think we just look at the at the tip of the iceberg here. Yes. I think there is a lot more conversation. I can think many, many different aspects, especially if we want to dig more into algorithm and 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 the way. Also, uh, maybe if you come back, and again, I'm inviting you to come back to look at what it used to be, right before the internet. Yes. What, how would we, you mentioned the tulips market, which I think is fascinating and to, to go into something like that. And then how the prices are decided maybe on the fish market in, uh, in Tokyo uh, four in That's the morning right. when the fish arrives. And so there is a demand and a third and how much fish did you actually catch that day versus another. And so a lot of different variables that come yes. into play. There are very different problems. I'm happy to come back. Uh, just yeah. a teaser or something for people to think about. It used to be that most of what you paid for cost something to the company who was offering it to you. I'm buying a car. There's a physical car. I have it in my hands. It costs to build the car. It, it has the, So I'm paying for that car. A big chunk is I'm paying for the cost of building the car. Uh, as we move to a world that is more digital, um, when I'm listening to a song, it doesn't cost anybody else anything to get that song to be come to my ears. So digital goods have no marginal costs. And, and the, the theory about how to set prices for things that have no marginal costs have evolved massively. And it's one that, that I call progressive pricing, that you need to have your prices differ depending on people, depending on the value they get. Otherwise, you don't survive as a company. In other words, Spotify can exist because there are people who are using it for free and because they're also people that are paying for that. And if Spotify finds a really good way to charge different prices to different people for something that could be relatively similar, but they differentiate it, that will make the digital goods more usable by everybody. What is true for music can be true for news, can be true for video, can be true for 
all digital goods. And maybe that's something we talk about next time. Absolutely. I'm, I'm up for that because uh, nowadays we, we don't uh, really own much of what we pay for. The day that you close the account, uh, yes. let's say on Apple Music or Spotify, it's all gone. You, you don't have the vinyl and cassette to, to, to keep for your kids or anything like that. Well, uh, Jean, uh, fascinating. Thank you for stopping by. I'm going to put the link to your book and to your social media and everything you want to share with the audience in the notes. Uh, the promise is to invite you back to keep this conversation going. And I hope people enjoy it and uh, that they have more questions than answers in their head right now because maybe they discover something and think about something that they never really pause that much to, to think about. So. Again, everybody, subscribe, stay tuned, and John, thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. It was a pleasure. Bye, everybody. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Society podcast, hosted by Marco Cipelli. If you learned something new, and this conversation made you think then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and share the ITSP Magazine podcast network with your friends, family, and colleagues. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.